Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. As we begin this morning, let me just uh, say a few words, hopefully, to set the stage here for the topic that we're going to discuss again today. We're going to be talking about, as I told you two weeks ago, probably two more Sundays on this, continuing our discussion on the doctrine of election. I, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I've said this before, but I just feel compelled to say it again. I was on a radically different side of the fence related to the understanding of this doctrine than I am now. And I loved the Lord then, and I love the Lord now. You see, we have, we have a fairly um, clear understanding, if we've been a believer for very long, that the process of growth and maturity takes place following salvation and through the rest of our lives. That we have to grow in, for example, the desires of our heart. The desires of our heart need to become more and more like the heart of Christ. That doesn't happen instantaneously and perfectly at salvation. It is a process of growth, right? Is that true? So that our desires become conformed to His. Another thing that has to, and we we are quick to accept that, another thing that has to grow in our spiritual life is our character has to grow. When we get saved, we don't think like Jesus, act like Jesus, talk like Jesus, walk like Jesus, like we should. Not that we even do after 40 years, but there is a change that takes place. There is a growth process. And we are, I believe... I haven't met anyone that struggles with that. We are quick to embrace that. But there's also another area of growth that's a part of the sanctification process, and it is growth in the way that we think. We have to put on the mind of Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simple and at the same time unfathomably profound. And it is a lifetime pursuit to continue to plumb the depths of the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we grow in that. It seems that the struggle, and I would, again, I 
I'm talking to Brad here. This is my story. It seems that the struggle is that that is the hard one to accept. That we take offense when someone says that we need to grow in our understanding of the gospel. We take offense to that in ways that we don't when someone says we need to grow some more in character or grow some more in desire. It seems to be, for some reason, more biting to our, maybe our human pride that we haven't arrived mentally yet. Folks, the reality is we're to be in process for a lifetime. We don't arrive, we move forward. To say that I believe what I believe and it's never going to change until the day I die, that's really a dangerous statement. There are things to know about God and understand about His gospel that are going to take longer than your lifetime. It's going to take all of eternity. So, what I am encouraging you with is not to be offended if things that you hear don't line up with your current understanding. Just ponder them. Check them with the Word of God. Please do that. Please do that. I want you to do that every time you come and hear truth at this church. I want you to go and check it with the Word of God. I mean really check it. Don't just check out if it doesn't line up to your current presuppositions, but check it out. Be willing to admit, I don't know everything there is to know about this. And be humble before the Lord. I I hope that you have heard and seen the desire in me. I I know that I I am passionate in the pulpit, but I want to be humble while I'm passionate. I don't know all this stuff. I'm I'm in a learning process. And I am so patient. I'm not normally a very patient guy, but I'm telling you with this stuff here, I'm very patient because I was the guy on the other side of the fence adamantly there. So I've appreciated the few of you that have sent questions. I want you to continue to do that. Email me questions about this doctrine, the doctrine of election or the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, About eight or nine people have over the last four weeks, sent questions, and it's been fun to dialogue and for me to understand how you're hearing uh, what I'm attempting to communicate, so I've appreciated that. I want you to know that. So let's, let's wade out again. Now, if you haven't been here for the last four or five weeks, you're going to be jumping into the midst of some pretty deep stuff. You can certainly get uh, online if you have a smartphone or messages are uploaded Monday. Um, you could go back and listen to those. But We're going to wade out deeply again this morning, maybe deeper than we have been, into the doctrine of election. We're taking this from Romans chapter 8, verses 28, 29, 
and 30, which is one of the key texts in Scripture, one of many texts in Scripture that talk about the doctrine of election. What I told you two weeks ago that we were going to do this morning is that I was going to select two or three of the chief texts that are used by those opposed to the doctrine of election to refute it. I think, I mean, I hope you understand this. We need to look at all of the Word of God, not just the texts that we like, that endorse where we currently stand. So, I have pulled out what are, I would say, unquestionably, not even, I mean, it's really, um, I think, easily identifiable that the three texts that we're going to look at today are the three key texts that bring the most opposition in people's minds, in evangelical Christians' minds, to the doctrine of election. Let me just read them first. Uh, the doc, maybe for review, the doctrine of the election, again, just to restate it quickly, is this. That God, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, in His eternal counsel, determined those he was going to elect or choose to save. And that choice was based upon nothing in the individual whatsoever, but only and exclusively in God himself, not contingent upon any external factors. It was God in his own eternal counsels determining those he would lavish his saving love upon, eternally saving love upon in election. Not saying, don't read more. I've found this to be true quite often that more is read into what is said. I'm not saying that God does not love all. He absolutely does. But election is God choosing those that he is going to save eternally and choosing that based upon his own counsel in eternity past. Now, three scriptures that seem on the surface to fly in the face of that truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 4. Paul writes to Timothy, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior. And here it comes who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
first scripture. Second scripture, Second Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Here it comes. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Here it comes. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. What I want to do is I want to begin... I think probably that pointed out the tension between election and those three statements in those three passages. But let me just back up two pairs of verses that show, number one, exclusive election and then number two, universal invitation. Here's exclusive election. John 6.65 And Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Exclusive election. Here's universal invitation, John 7, 37. That seems like a radical contradiction. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you hear the The conflict between those two verses, let me do one more pair. Romans 9, 15 and 16, exclusive election. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, universal invitation, Luke 11, 28. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So here is the issue. The question is not, are both of those doctrines in the Bible? The doctrine of the universal invitation and God's desire for all to be saved, and the doctrine of unconditional election, and God's selecting those in eternity past He would save. The question is not, are they both there? They are so obviously both there. If you cannot admit that, then I don't even know what I could possibly say to you. They are all over in Scripture. The question is, How are we to reconcile what appears to be a drastic contradiction? That's the question. So here's one approach. One approach is to ignore. To ignore is to do this, to simply spend time and energy on the passages of Scripture that you believe back up the position that you hold and ignore the other Scriptures, giving them little or no focus. It's one Option. Here's a second option. To debate. And I don't mean that word in a negative connotation. To debate. To be willing to discuss the biblical evidence 
on both sides of the controversy and to do so in an attempt to get the true meaning of the texts, S, and reconcile them together. I think that's a good approach. But I think that there is a third approach related to this subject. And it's the approach that I want to take this morning. I believe in dealing with the subject that we are facing, uh, my conviction is it's the best approach. It is to affirm the truth that stands plainly in the three texts that I read to begin this message. The truth that stands clearly out in those passages and that truth, if I would just sum it up in a statement, is this. God desires the salvation of all of the lost. I affirm that truth. I know many of you in your comments have thought that I did not. You read more into what I have said thinking I did not affirm that truth. I affirm that truth. I believe God's desire is that all of the lost would be saved. I also want to affirm that I believe that God calls in multiple places in Scripture, come to me and receive the free gift. That he says, whosoever will may come. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe that we have a God of compassion and that that God of compassion came to seek and to save the lost. I believe that. I know that to be true. And that he genuinely desires that all would turn to him. Yet here's the rub. Here's the rub. I also wholeheartedly affirm that we can only choose God if he chooses us. I.e. elects us. And that everyone that God chooses will choose God. I believe all of those truths, those two pillars of truth that seem to stand in contradiction, I do not believe they're a contradiction. Here's what I believe they are, and it's going to be my goal to show you this in this message. They're a paradox, not a contradiction. I don't believe there is a contradiction in the Word of God when the passages are rightly understood. And this is one of the most difficult set of doctrines to reconcile. But they are not contradictory. They stand in paradox. Here's what happens quite often. Many using those three passages of Scripture that we opened with, Timothy and Peter and Ezekiel. They want to use those as spiritual weapons of mass destruction against the doctrine of election. Spiritual WMDs. And they want to fly over those passages and drop them and say, 
They both can't be true. This one must defeat that. Folks, again, I used to be the guy dropping the bombs. I I just want to be very humble and say that. So here is what I am setting out to do this morning. If it is true that God desires or wills the salvation of all, and if it is true that God from eternity past has elected, has chosen those whom He is going to save, then the only possible conclusion is that there are two wills in God. Do you understand what I just said right there? That if both of those truths that look contradictory on the surface are true, what must be true is that there are in some sense two wills in God. Now, if I were to just dream that up by speculation and make that claim because of a deduction that I saw, it would be be total foolishness. However, if, if we can look into the Word of God and clearly see unarguable biblical evidence that these two wills are in God backed up by Scripture, then we need to, whether we grasp it, that infinite concept or not with our finite minds, we have to, in integrity to the Word of God, say, I embrace both of those. If the Word of God and the evidence of the Word of God shows both of them to be true, then I need to, even if it is bigger than the parameters of my reasoning, I need to embrace it. That is the conclusion that I have come to personally. So I invite you to consider with me this morning a sampling, just a sampling of the extensive evidence in the Word of God that shows that God has two wills. He has a will or a desire. You know, His desire can be spoken of as His will. He has a will or a desire that all of the lost be saved and He has a will, a determined will that has elected to save some. So, I told you a few weeks ago just very briefly about these two wills. Let me just state them again to try to Get the outline clearly in your mind. They're called different things. Um, Sometimes they're called, and here's how I introduced it a few weeks ago, God's revealed will and God's secret will. 
God's revealed will and His secret will. The other terms that are put to that, under God's revealed will, it's God's will of command or will of desire. Where do we hear about God's will of command or what God desires for our lives? Where do we hear about that? Right here. This is it. God has revealed His will. This is His revealed will. This is His will of command. This is His will of desire for you and I, right here. But there's another will of God. There's His will of decree or His sovereign will. That's the will that is secret. That's the will from eternity past according to His counsel that He decided and didn't inform us or ask our opinion on. It is His and His alone. I want to show you now is that God, here's kind of the crux of the issue, is that God can decree an event in His sovereign will, His eternal will. He can decree an event in which the outworking of that event goes against His will of command. That goes against His will of desire. I mean, sovereignly decree. That means accomplish it as well as decide it. That God can sovereignly decree what He is going to do in the counsels of His wisdom and in the outflowing of that in real time. There can be events associated with the fulfilling of that will that are against His will of command or His revealed will. If I can show you that from Scripture, if I can give you the biblical evidence of that from Scripture, then we can come to the subject of God's desire for all to be saved and God's election in deciding those who will be saved and say there's no contradiction because one is based upon God's will of command or desire and the other is based upon God's will of decree or His sovereign will. And that those are both in God. And the evidence, the built up evidence in Scripture of illustrations where these have been shown to be true can help us embrace the truth of both of those on this difficult subject. So let's see if we can build some solid biblical precedents here for the two wills of God and how they can seemingly work in opposition to each other. First category is God restraining obedience while advancing sin. Now, try not to define that fully. Just listen to the example and let it define itself. One of the examples here, one of the key examples here is the paradox of God hardening rebellious hearts 
thereby causing them to continue in their rebellion instead of obey His revealed will. Now, I'm sure if you've been a student of the Word for any time, you're already thinking of examples biblically that would line up for that. Pharaoh. Let's go to Pharaoh. The Hebrews were in bondage in Egypt. God's chosen people in bondage under Egypt as slaves. And God sent Moses to go to Egypt and to be his instrument through which he freed the Hebrew slaves from Egyptian bondage and led them out toward a land of promise. Listen to what God says to Moses when he comes to give him the commission in Exodus chapter 7, verses 2-4. You, Moses, shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Do you see the paradox right there? Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him, message direct, revealed will of God, will of command, Pharaoh, let my people go. Next sentence, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he doesn't do what I told him to do. Man, that's a paradox. It's an incredible paradox. That is God working to restrain obedience so that the disobedience to the expressed, revealed command of God continues. He did that in the life of Pharaoh. And it's not just in one verse. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. That's a direct command from God through Moses. And it's repeated multiple times through a series of ten events. And each time that the command is given and Pharaoh disobeys, there is a resulting ramification that brings considerable disaster to the Egyptian people. And as the disobedience continues, the ramifications of the sin increase. So, Exodus 8.1, let my people go. Exodus 9.12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Exodus 10.1, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them. And the story repeats itself five more times. Let my people go. And then God hardens his heart, Exodus 10.20. Let my people go, and then God hardens his heart, 
Exodus 10.27, and then Exodus 11.10, and then Exodus 14.4, and then Exodus 14.8. The Bible explicitly says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and the purpose behind the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh is that Pharaoh will disobey God's direct command. That's the purpose, so that Pharaoh will disobey the immediate purpose, so that Pharaoh will disobey God's command, so that God will continue to pour out his power, thereby glorifying himself through the event. It's it's undeniable from Scripture. Was Pharaoh then guilty for his sin? Absolutely he was guilty. Absolutely he was guilty. Here's a paradox again. Was God charged with evil because of his hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Absolutely not. God is holy. All of his ways are perfectly just and righteous. He does everything according to the counsel of his perfect righteousness and knowledge, and wisdom. So there is no sin laid to the fault of God in the hardening of Pharaoh, and yet even though God hardens Pharaoh, the sin is charged to Pharaoh. That is clearly the story as it unfolds in Exodus. Can we understand that fully? I say to you, absolutely not. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Another example. Let's build some more biblical evidence. Eli's sons. Eli's sons. Here's another example of God restraining obedience so that evil advances as seen in the lives of Eli and his sons. They were wicked sons. Eli served at the place of worship where the Israelites would come to worship God and his sons were wicked men. And they used the privileges associated with their position and the position of their father to pursue their sinful vices. For Samuel 2, 22 to 25. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? See what dad is saying here? You're painting yourself into a scary corner. And then listen to his last statement. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Why? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. 
That verse tells us, if you look closely at the last phrase, that the reason they would not listen to their father was because it was the will of the Lord that they wouldn't so that God could take them or would take them out. God had a purpose that he was accomplishing in willing them to obstinately continue in their sinful activity of sexual immorality and disobedience to their father and a list of other sins that would have been associated with that. Here again is an example, an explicit statement in Scripture in which it was the will of God for a situation to continue that was directly against his revealed will. His revealed will says sexual immorality is wrong. His revealed will says honor your father and obey your father and mother. And yet, his will of decree, his sovereign, unsearchable will, was that they would continue in that process so that he would ultimately display his justice. Can we understand that fully? Absolutely not. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Romans eleven thirty three again. Let's go to another category. God and the death of the wicked. God and the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18.23 This is the passage that we read. One of the three key passages that we read at the beginning. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Here it is declared through the prophet Ezekiel that God does not have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. That is the expressed statement from God through his prophet. I do not have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Question, is that the full counsel of the Word of God on that subject? It's not. Is it a part of the Word of God on that subject? It is. Is it the full counsel of the Word of God? It is not. Listen to what Moses says to Israel in the midst of their godless activity as a nation. Deuteronomy 28.63 And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. What is the expressed statement of Scripture? Explicit in the text. It is that God will take delight in bringing ruin upon them, in destroying them because of their wickedness. So what is the conclusion? The conclusion that I draw is that God transcends our understanding so that He can in one sense say regarding Himself in His Word that I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he can, in another sense, through the expressed, explicit statement of the word, say that I delight in bringing destruction 
on those wicked people. Is that a contradiction? No, it is a paradox. Because God in His will of decree, His unknown, secret, sovereign will, He can determine that He is going to righteously and justly destroy the wicked in the sense that it is the pleasure of His justice to do that. And at the same time, He can have His will of command or His will of desire that at the same time takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Scripture explicitly says that both of those are true. So we can either ignore the one that we don't like, or we can say God is big enough to have both of those realities in His being if the Word of God says that they're there. I'm not talking about us dreaming up stuff that is not in the Word of God. I'm saying if there is biblical evidence for it, it is teaching us then that there is a sense in which these two wills that look contradictory can exist at the same time in a perfectly unified God. Can we understand that? Absolutely not. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Category number three. God accomplishing. Here, here is the epitome right here, folks. This is the highest and most exalted example that if we only had one, this should settle the issue in my mind. God accomplishing the suffering and crucifixion of His holy, eternal Son. Now, if that does not look like a contradiction, I'm not sure what in Scripture could be. Listen closely to what Luke writes in Acts chapter 2 concerning God the Father's plan. Let me say that again. Concerning God the Father's plan regarding His Son. Acts 2.23, Luke writes, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter here, in Acts chapter 2, if you remember the setting, this is the day of Pentecost. There's a huge group of people gathered. Many Jews gathered there for a holy day, a holiday for the Jewish people. And there's been a sound of a mighty rushing wind and a large gathering in Peter's preaching to them. And he is preaching to Jews, thousands of Jews, some of which were a part of the crowd that cried out, crucify him, when Jesus was being tried. 
We know that Scripture says to us, look at it carefully, that Jesus was delivered up. He was delivered up. This Jesus delivered up. And who delivered him up? The Jews delivered him up. And they delivered him up because of their jealousy of him. Is their jealousy of him a part of God's will of command? Is it against God's will of command? Of course it is. Their desire to call for his death, their animosity toward him, their hatred toward him, their slander of him, anything to manipulate the situation to secure the death of the Holy Son of God, is that against God's will of command? His revealed moral will? Absolutely. It is directly in outward, antagonistic, aggressive rebellion against God's will of command. And yet, it says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. It, now let me just change it a little bit to show you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Jesus was crucified only according to the definite plan of God. It says Jesus was delivered up. That means the circumstances that came together that delivered Him over to be crucified were all a part of the definite plan of God. What was included in that? It was the Jews, like I just explained. It was Pilate, spineless Pilate, being manipulated by a crowd, protecting himself and sentencing Jesus. It was the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, in their mockery, gathering around and inflicting brutal punishment on the Holy Son of God. Was that against God's moral law? Was His moral will and decree? Absolutely it was. How about the event that set the motion in progress? The betrayer. Judas. Quite Possibly, I'm not sure that I can argue this fully, but I have some conviction toward this line of thought, and that is that quite possibly the most heinous, sinful event in human history was the betrayal of the Son of God by Judas. And yet that event was a part of the Definite plan of God by which Jesus was delivered up. So that those things that were so directly against God's will of command were a part of His will of decree that He had determined in eternity past precisely what was going to take place in His sovereignty He brought it about. And He did that without any sin being charged to Him. And He did that while still holding responsible those who broke His will of command following His will of decree 
to the letter to carry it out to completion. That is certainly the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Can we understand that fully? Absolutely not. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Romans 11.33 again. Therefore, to wrap this up, God has a moral will, his will of command. And he has revealed that will to us. It is his known will. It is his desire for us and how we should live. And he's made it clear. But God also has a secret will, a will of decree that is far higher and beyond us. A will that we are never going to fully understand because we are finite and it is infinite as God is infinite. What we are attempting to do here is have Him expand our understanding to grow our minds to line up with what looks like on the surface contradictions in Scripture, but actually are paradoxes in which both of them are true as evidenced clearly by the biblical account. So that we should humbly be able to hold in tension both of those truths and say, God is big enough for that. I don't understand all of it, but He is God and He will have mercy on whom He has mercy. And He will condemn who He wants to condemn. And He will do that without letting us fully understand how those purposes work those purposes that are according to His eternal counsel and wisdom so that we can come to these two ideas. God is a God who desires all to be saved. Absolutely true. Praise God. He's that kind of a God. And he is also the God who in eternity past determined according to the counsel of his own will without any influence outside of himself those who he would elect and save eternally. Both of those are true. Both of those are true. That is my conviction. So that we can say, so that I can say, to any person, come to Jesus and you will be saved. Accept Jesus and you will be saved. That the offer of the cross is a real offer to every person. Yet at the same time, it is the elect whom God is going to move upon to respond to that. 
And how all of that works itself out, I leave to God. But he says both of them in his word. We're going to do one more Sunday where we look at kind of going beyond election now, looking at the whole doctrine unfolded in Romans 8, 28 through 30, the doctrine of the security of the believer or the perseverance of the saints. And we're going to look at scriptures like we did today, the key scriptures that seem to contradict the eternal perseverance of the saints and see if we can come to some understanding surrounding them as well. Would you please stand? Spirit of God is in this place. The truth of the gospel is being proclaimed. Jesus' offer of salvation is for you. Whosoever will may come. If you have not done so and are being led in spirit or has the desire to accept Jesus as your Savior, that offer is being given to you today. You're one of the elect. Take it. Take it. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, that you're God. Thank you that your ways are perfect, that your justice is true and fair, that your mercy has no limits to its reach, your grace has no limits to its power to save. Thank you. God, I pray for those here that have not accepted you as their Savior. God, would you please move upon them in effectual power by your Spirit. Regenerate them to life. Help them to see what they could never see. Understand what they could never understand. Grant them repentance unto life and faith in your Son so that they are moved by your Spirit to put their faith and trust in Jesus and be saved. And then, Lord, for those believers here, God, Continue, Lord, to grow our understandings of you. Expand our minds. Help us to get a deeper and deeper grasp on the full counsel of the Word of God, for in doing so, that will only bring you more glory because the more we know you, the more we will love you. And the more we love you, the more we will serve you. Commit it.
to your will. In the name of Christ, I pray, amen.